If you have your Bible or if you want to grab one in the back, we are headed back to the book of John and we are headed to chapter 17 this morning as we march our way by Easter Sunday to the end of the Gospel of John that we have been working through most of this year. As we finish out this series entitled Following Jesus, understanding from His Word, from His life, from the Scriptures, what does it mean for us as believers to follow Jesus now in 2021 from the timeless, from the inerrant, from the Scriptures? John chapter 17, the whole chapter, it's 26 verses, is oftentimes referred to as the high priestly prayer. And it is referred to that because when Jesus prays in this chapter, what he's doing is really mirroring the high high priestly prayers of the Old Testament in which the priest would begin by praying for himself, for his own salvation, and then he would move to praying for his immediate family, those closest to him, and then he would pray for the entire community, the people of God, the Old Testament people of Israel. And Jesus is going to do the exact same thing for us here this morning. He spends just five short verses praying for himself, and the remainder of this prayer is on behalf of, next, his 11 disciples, Judas Iscariot is now gone, his his inner circle, and then he spends verses 20 through 26 praying for every single believer for all time, all those who will come to him in faith. And if you've ever wondered, well, how do I pray? This prayer idea, I like the idea, but it's new to me. Jesus shows us how to pray, what it looks like. What are the words? What are the ideas? How can I come to God? But the astounding thing, and maybe this is a question you've asked as well, is, well, how does God the Son pray to God the Father? He's God. Well, again, we've explored the the amazing mystery that is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three persons. But what you're going to see here is Jesus teaches us how to pray, and we can pray and talk to and have the exact same relationship with God the Father that Jesus Christ himself has, one that is close, that is intimate, that God the Father will listen to our heart. And so as we listen to Jesus' heart this morning, we're going to learn how to pray. We're going to learn what is important to Jesus, the Son of God, a few hours before he goes to the cross. We're going to learn how Jesus, the Son of God, views challenging circumstances. To to call it challenging would be an understatement. So let's take a moment now and let's pray one more time and just ask that the Holy Spirit would guide us now as we open his word and that he would illuminate it for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word Lord, we come to you in humility. We thank you for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you for the grace and the life and the hope that we have in King Jesus. And Lord, would you teach us to pray this morning as we listen to Jesus' prayer? Would you teach us how to live as we listen to Jesus' prayer and his words and his heart? Father, give us that same heart this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two big applications as we span these 26 verses this morning as we learn from Jesus how to pray and how to live. Number one, big idea here coming from those first five verses where Jesus prays for himself, Jesus shows us how to pray by praying for himself. And if you're a note taker, you're going to see I'm going to to pull out for you five little ideas, maybe Roman numerals, one through five, that come out of Jesus' first five verses of prayer. Let's read now this opening portion of his prayer. Verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. 
since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And this is eternal life, that they know you. Sorry, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. First thing we see here is that Jesus has a personal relationship with the Father, and so can you. He shows us this clearly by the simple and profound and powerful, amazing word, Father. He talks to God, the Creator, and calls Him Father. Jesus is praying in front of His remaining 11 disciples and for us for all time and showing us something very clearly that they too and we too can and do have a good and loving Father. Sometimes in our, in our world, we talk about the difference. Unfortunately, we have to talk about the difference between a father and a dad, right? That there is a difference in those experiences and who we are or what we uh, come to find in our own family. God is not just your creator, although that in itself is an amazing act of love on his part. He is a dad, meaning he is close. He is personal. He speaks to us every day in his word. He is available 24-7 to hear from you. He desires to be with you. He will never let you down. Some of us, based on our own human experiences and relationships with fathers or with parents, have a hard time feeling that or even believing it because our experience here on earth with a human dad has not been quite the same. And so I want to speak to all of us, whether you had a wonderful or a difficult relationship growing up, wherever you are in life, that God reveals himself as a good and loving father. This is hard for us to grasp as well because there are a multitude of organizations and groups of people, particularly in our culture right now, who would love to rip apart the idea not only that God is a loving father, but that your dad or your mom can love you as well. There are many who will speak into this world the desire to tear apart, to rip apart, quote, the nuclear family. And I want you to understand that God's plan A is the nuclear family. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, we make mistakes. Do not listen to those, though, in our world, in our nation, who hate mommies and daddies loving their sons and daughters. It is God's way. It's a good way. And he's called us by his grace to live it out as well. Look at Galatians chapter 4. Just one small snapshot of this idea in action. Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Every single one of us can literally become a brother and a sister of Jesus, a son or a daughter of God. Profoundly important. 
When the Bible says Abba and Father, it's actually two different languages. It's Aramaic and it's Greek to communicate the fullness of the reality that all people everywhere from every tribe, tongue, and nation can experience a fatherly relationship with the creator God of the universe through Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus prays also, secondly, for glory for his father and for himself. He prays for glory not only for God, but also for himself. What does he mean? Well, first of all, Jesus has always been God. He was there before creation, we are told in this verse and many others. But when he came to earth, he set aside his outward glory and took upon himself human flesh. He didn't stop being God, but if he didn't do that, we could never have even approached him here on earth because of his holiness and his power and his glory. Philippians 2 gives us the picture of what's happening. It says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. But then it ends by saying this, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Glory. Every single human being who who walks this planet is looking for that thing. We're looking for satisfaction. We're looking for a hope that won't disappoint. We're looking for that happiness that never gets messed with. And what we are looking for, every single human being, whether we realize it or not, is glory. We're looking for glory, but it's the type of glory that only can come from God. Jesus says, give me glory even as I glorify you. And in a very real sense, what Jesus has done is he has made a way for you to have and to experience glory as well. Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 says exactly that. In fact, it says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. Jesus says in this passage, I'm giving my glory to all who will come and who will follow me that you can experience the satisfaction that you have been looking for, not that this world can offer it to you. It's broken, but that he can, that we get to be a part of his great rescue mission here on earth, that our sins have been washed away, that we have new life and new hope and new purpose in Christ. Nothing will satisfy like the glory of God. Thirdly, he goes on to tell us that he has authority. Jesus declares his authority. We live in a very anti-authority world at the moment. Jesus says, I am in charge. First, he tells us that he is in control over time and death, simply by saying the hour has come. He and the Father decided the hour. This is God's sovereign plan. They're not going, oh my goodness, we did not see the devil doing this. What must we do? We better come up with a plan B. Uh, Jesus, you, you do the cross thing. That's not it, right? He's saying, the time has come. This is my plan and my purpose for my people, and I will accomplish it. Sometimes we will, with the right intentions, we will accidentally say something like, Jesus was murdered. Don't give the enemies of God that much credit. John chapter 10 and verse 18, Jesus says specifically, they do not take my life, rather I lay it down for my sheep. Jesus gave up his life 
They may have held the nails, but Jesus gave up his life. They could not take it from him because he has authority. And then Jesus takes it a step further. He says he has authority over all humanity, all flesh, over who receives eternal life, and over all believers. That is that God the Father gave Jesus a gift. Who is that gift? Believers, a particular people, his people, and gives Jesus the authority to give them salvation. Maybe this is a new idea to you. I didn't make it up. Jesus is telling us what it is for him to do from before the foundation of the world, says the scripture. And some of us will get uncomfortable with the idea that God would be sovereign over or even initiate salvation to reach out to us and that it's not our will first or that our will might somehow be threatened. But I want you to understand the Bible has no such tension. The Bible expresses repeatedly that God is sovereign over not the things that we choose, but that God is sovereign and powerful over all things. And that if the Holy Spirit does not begin the work in us to change our hearts, to move them from what Ephesians says is a dead heart to life, then our will would never turn to Jesus in thankfulness and in belief and say, Lord Jesus, I want you to save me, change my life from the inside out. In fact, Jesus says in John 15, 16, he chose us, we did not choose him. And yet everyone is absolutely individually responsible to come to God in faith, in trust, in belief, and ask him to be your personal Lord and Savior. Fourthly, Jesus declares that true knowledge is in the Father and the Son. Jesus says real knowledge is in me and in my Father. You know, a lot of people claim that they have the real stuff. They've got the real knowledge based on their mysticism, or they say, I've got, I've got the true knowledge based on their personal lived experience, or their degree, or I know the truth because of my political party, or I know the truth because of science, right? Everybody's got the corner on the market of science right now. You notice that? Everybody. Science. I've got it. Let me tell you something. Science cannot tell you everything. It can tell you what is measurable and repeatable. Faith, the Word of God, and the Creator are bigger than all of those things. God has something bigger to tell us. He says this, here is eternal life. Here is real knowledge. Here is real truth. Real simple. Knowing God and His Son, Jesus Christ. True knowledge. Romans 1 goes on to say that humanity knows about God, and therefore no one in humanity is without excuse. Knowing about God and knowing him personally by saving faith is not the same thing. Do you know James 2.19 says even the demons believe that Jesus exists, that he is who he says he is, and they shudder, meaning they reject it. Being aware is not the same as believing and having a personal relationship with the living God one in which the Holy Spirit makes you aware of your sin and you cry out to Jesus and say, forgive me for my sin. I need you. I need your grace. And thank God, fifth and finally, in his opening prayer here, Jesus tells us, he declares that his work for us is accomplished. His work for us is accomplished in verse four. See, Jesus was there before creation. His perfect life, his ministry, his teaching, his miracles, his death, his payment for sin, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven one day to return to take his own home. 
He is in authority and he has finished the work. Thank God he's done. John 19, 30, Jesus is hanging on the cross. One of the final seven things that he says while hanging on the cross is, it is finished. He doesn't say, guys, this has been really hard. I'm really emotionally exhausted. I'm going to come back to it later. He doesn't say, this is worse than I thought it was. Your sin is so bad that I reject you. He doesn't say, I'm going to get this started, guys, and then you should probably do a lot of good things, and then maybe you can sort of finish it out for me. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, it is finished at this moment, 2,000 years ago, when he died on the cross. It is finished. We became homeowners for the first time ever a year and a half ago. A little late start in the game of buying a home. I don't recommend it for anybody. It's insanity, right? If you bought a house, you sold a house, you're like, this is way more than I ever wanted. And the thing that you want least of all is not just that you owe a payment, but there's this thing called interest. Ugh. Ugh. So many people, especially now, they are buried under their debt, but the problem is that debt is spiraling out of control because of all the other interest that is on top of it. So I don't just owe for this, I owe on top of this. And what Jesus is saying here, to use homeowner, banker, financial language is, by my death on the cross, your payment has been paid in full. It's done. You don't need to add to it, you cannot add to it. All you must do is come to me in faith and believe that I say, believe that I am who I say that I am. Your debt is paid. It's finished. Number two now, looking at the remainder of John chapter 17, as we hear from Jesus praying for himself, we learn a lot. Now, number two, Jesus shows us how to live as he prays for all believers. And in this, he begins by praying for the disciples. He finishes by praying for all of us. And what I want us to sort of take away, if I give you a subheading, is seven marks of the church of Jesus Christ. Worldwide, the capital C church, what does it mean for us to be the people of God today in 2021? Jesus prays, and as we listen to him pray and we hear what he asks for, we are informed who are we, by his grace, called to be. Number one of number two, if you will. Number one, the church is given by the Father. It's important for us to know who we are. The church is given by the Father. Jesus continually comes back to this theme. Look at verses 6 and 7 as we're just going to walk our way through the remainder of the prayer. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. So Jesus tells us again in his prayer that the church, every believer is given by the Father to the Son, and as a result, they have kept God's word. Note the order once again. Note grace. God's love in giving them to the Son first. Our obedience second. He says seven times in his prayer, those who you have given me. It's the most prominent thing he says throughout his prayer. We refer to this promise being demonstrated once again here in John 17 as the covenant of redemption. A covenant is a promise that's not going to be broken. And it's a promise between God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Holy Spirit, that the Father has initiated salvation, the Son, as we just saw, accomplishes salvation, and the Holy Spirit applies the work of salvation to us, meaning making us more and more into the image of Christ while we still exist in this sinful and broken world. So number one, the church is given by the Father. Well, what is our role? Number two, Jesus tells us immediately, the church is, this is who we are, is believing and receiving. The church is believing and receiving. Listen to Jesus. Next verse, which is verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me. It's the gospel. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus has given the gospel to all those the Father has given him, and they must do what? Receive the good news of Jesus, to know the good news of Jesus, not academically to check boxes, but to know him personally and to believe. It's really three different beautiful ways of saying the same thing. You must respond to Jesus. You must say, Lord Jesus, I want you. I choose you in response to your grace. No one can do it for you. We talked about this last week. Being in a garage does not make you a car. Being the child of believers does not make you a Christian. Attending a Christian school does not make you a Christian. Believing in Jesus Christ and asking Him to be your personal Lord and Savior makes you a part of His church family, saved. Acts chapter 16 in the New Testament, one of my favorite stories. Paul and Silas are out sharing the gospel with anybody who will listen. The world hates that they are talking about Jesus, and so the Roman soldiers arrest them beat them and throw them in a disgusting prison and about midnight while they are bleeding and chained to the floor. What are they doing? Of course, they're singing hymns and praising Jesus and God the Father who has a plan for their lives sends an earthquake, a miraculous work of God, breaks open the prison, their chains come undone and Paul and Silas are about to uh, not leave. The jailer who is there in that moment assumes all the prisoners are going to run away, and so he goes to take his own life, and Paul, in the, an amazing human act of grace, says, don't kill yourself. And this moment is so overwhelming for this Roman soldier who to this point in his life has hated God that he looks at Paul and Silas and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What do they say? Get your theology straight. Is that what they say? Uh, pray the rosary five times and then get back with me. Isn't that what they say? What do they say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You and your family. And then he and his family believe that very night and we'll see them one day in heaven. It's that simple. Believe, receive. Number three, the church. Who are we? It's a mark of the church. The church is continually prayed for by the Son and the Holy Spirit. The church is continually prayed for by the Son and the Holy Spirit. I realize that we're reading a prayer of Jesus, but I want us to make sure that we see this. Verses 9 and 10. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Jesus is praying for us back then, 2,000 years ago. He is praying for us in this exact moment as you sit in a chair in a Bayside High School cafeteria. Jesus, the Son of God, is praying for you. 
See Hebrews 7.25 and Romans 8.34 for details. Not only that, the Holy Spirit, we are told in Romans 8.26, is perpetually praying, interceding with groans that cannot be understood for us. That means the Son and the Holy Spirit are always praying for you. That should tell you at least two things. One, you are incredibly loved by God. I can't give you the calculus on that. I'm just telling you, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are praying for you if you are in Christ. What a gift. And secondly, that should tell us that prayer is an incredibly, profoundly important part of the life of a believer because that is how Jesus and the Holy Spirit are interacting with the Father. If they're doing it, we should probably do that too. What an opportunity. I can talk to the God of this universe in the same way that Jesus, the Son of God, can. I'm not going to want to miss out on that opportunity. What, what an opportunity. And if, you are, if you're in a position where you're saying, I'm still on the fence about Jesus, and many of us are, what should my relationship with Him be? I just want to point out something that um, should concern you. Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world. This is black and white. I'm praying for my people. I'm praying, I'm praying for believers. It is absolutely an exclusive relationship. Jesus makes that clear. It is an exclusive relationship. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But that's not it, is it? It's exclusive and it's absolutely available to you this very minute. He's not saying it's not open. He's saying the doors are wide open. You just have to come through me. It's exclusive and it's available. So why not take the step of faith and say, Jesus, I come to you for salvation. Number four. The church is unified and one. These are the things that Jesus is praying about a few hours before he dies. He tells us the church is unified and one. We're going to read verse 11, the next verse, and then I'm going to jump ahead and look at verse 20 through 23 where Jesus picks up the same exact theme a second time. Verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jump ahead to verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be per become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. He keeps saying the same thing over and over again. He must want to make a point. The church is one. God is not glorified by the massive divides in the big C church all over the world on little things like how do we handle coronavirus? How do we solve social justice issues? How do we respond to bad policies and bad presidents? Jesus is not glorified by our disunity. 
I miss the days when we could just have a good old-fashioned argument about dunking versus sprinkling, and we could all go home friends. God doesn't see the Presbyterian church. He doesn't just see the Baptist church. He doesn't see a Hispanic church or a white church. He doesn't see a woke church or a conservative church. He sees his bride, the church. He sees his children, sons and daughters of God. The church is one. Jesus died for the church. It's one. And there is no sin, no issue, no distraction, no brokenness that Satan can bring in that Jesus has not already broken down any dividing wall that might exist between us, says Ephesians 2, because he's eliminated the wall that separated us all from him. If he has broken down the sin that separates us from God, then certainly we can be one as a church. We've got to be. If it is a church anywhere in our city and they declare Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, salvation is through Him, then we are one church. I'm so thankful for every other church in this city. We need all of us. and We've got to act like we are one church. Number five, the church is filled with joy. Didn't see that one coming. The church is filled with joy. Look at verses 12 and 13, picking up where we were. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He says a mark of the church is joy. And maybe just thinking about how the word joy sort of jumps at us in, the, in this list should tell us again how, how much the modern-day church has maybe drifted from what the church was in the first century because they did not have things to make them happy. They found their joy in the Lord. So many of us, so many of us, myself chief among them, we find ourselves frustrated, angry, downhearted by circumstances. And instead of living in victory, the victory that we have because Jesus' work is finished, we live in defeat. I don't make enough money. I'm sick. I'm lonely. I'm struggling. I'm worried. I'm I'm concerned about things that are happening out in the world. Yes, they're real. But let me tell you something about just the word, circumstances. Think about the word circumstances. Circum means around. Stances means to stand. Circumstances are things that stand around you. Here, external. These are external things, circumstances. What is in you? Colossians 1.27, the hope of Christ is in you. So yes, we face very real struggles, but we should have joy knowing that there is no circumstance that can separate me from the love of Christ. Whatever happens, let me lovingly say, it doesn't matter. Because we have Jesus, we have joy. Many of you have heard of Fanny Crosby, the famous hymn writer. I love this lady and her story. She wrote many of the hymns that we still sing in so many churches. Uh, Back in the 1800s, she went blind when she was five years old. She lived that way until her death at 95 years of old. She had a reason maybe to not feel so much joy. Listen to what she wrote when she was eight, second grade. Oh, what a happy soul am I. Although I cannot see, I am resolved that in this world, contented I shall be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I am blind, I cannot. I won't. She's eight. 
She's filled with the joy of the Lord. I love that. And she's got her grammar nailed. She's amazing. Number six of seven, the church is sanctified. This is a long phrase. The church is sanctified by the truth and sent on mission. Don't pull them apart. The church is sanctified by the truth and sent on mission. Verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. The world hates Jesus' followers. There's no confusion on what Jesus says. Do not be surprised when the world does not like it when you lift high the name of Jesus. They hated Jesus, they will hate you. And Satan will come in and actively attack and tempt all those who declare Jesus as their Lord and try to peel them away into sin and into destruction. But Jesus says, until I return to take you home, I want you to live in the truth of God's word. In fact, I am God's word. And I want you to live sanctified. Sanctified, it's the same word as saint. It's the same word as holy. I want you to live holy, obedient, not of this world. I want you to follow what I have commanded you to do. You cannot do that on your own, but by God's grace, we're going to do the best that we can. But it doesn't end there, does it? He says, I want you to live holy, sanctified, according to God's word, and to live sent. That is that we are a part of God's rescue mission here on earth. He has called us to enter into the brokenness of this world and share the good news of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and rescue people from sin's destruction. He has not called us to hide in our basement because there's bad people out there who don't like us. This is not what he's called us to do. When I was in 12th grade, there's a banner over the chalkboard. We still had chalkboards at that point in time. What is popular is not always right. What is right is not always popular. You get that? Just because it's popular doesn't make it right. Just because it's right does not mean that it's ever going to be popular. So goes the truth of God's word, every page of it, and the good news of Jesus Christ contained therein. We will not, as a church, hide from the truth of God's word. We will lift it up. I do not care who says you cannot read that part of Scripture anymore. We will be committed to every word and every page of the Scripture because it's God's holy word. It is inerrant. It is infallible. Every word of God is flawless, says the Scripture. It is God-breathed, says the Scripture. It is everything that we need for life and godliness, says the Scripture. 
So we will absolutely commit ourselves by God's grace alone to follow His Word, and we will at the same time live sent into this world to deliver the good news, the Word of the gospel to all those who are around. Because Jesus says, I have sent them into the world just as I was sent by you, Father, into the world. Seventh and finally, notice that there is no tension here between truth and love. You don't have to pick one. In the gospel, you get both. Seventh and finally, the church is loved by God and commanded to love like Him. The church is loved by God and commanded to love like Him. Finishing out the prayer, verses 24 through 26, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We are loved by God the way that He loves His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus prays that His love would be known through the way that we love. It's the message of the Bible. Hope, joy, love. If we have been given love by God, then as believers what that means is everything that I have is a tool that God has given me to express His love towards others. My house is not mine. It is God's house to be used as a tool to express the love of Jesus Christ. My children are not mine. They are the Lord's. And they are, by my prayer, going to be used by God to express His love to the world. My time, my schedule, my job, my school, everything about who I am, it is not mine. It is a gift on loan from the Father, and I want to use it to express the love that I have been given I didn't earn it, I don't deserve it, freely given that I can express it to others. And so I'd ask you, even this week, this glorious spring break week for many of us, who is one person that the Lord would lay on your heart even now that I can, this week, move towards them with the love of Jesus Christ, with my actions and certainly with my words? Everything I have, it is about God's love poured out to me that I might continue to pour. Don't become a soggy sponge. You know what soggy sponges do? They rot, they get nasty, and we throw them in the trash. As God pours His love and His grace into you, get soppy wet. And then let the Lord Jesus Christ squeeze you out that the love of the Father might permeate throughout this city and throughout this world. Amen? Let's pray.